Why are people in our day worried about being canceled? Of their past actions, words, and so on being brought up and ruining their careers or their personal lives? Because in our secular world, there is no forgiveness. If you have rejected God, there's no one to give you forgiveness when you don't deserve it, so you don't want to forgive anyone else either. On the other hand, among Christians, there ought to be real forgiveness. It's at the heart of the gospel. But forgiveness only comes after repentance. So what then is repentance? Proverbs 28.13 sums it up well. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Transgression means crossing God's boundaries. Naturally, we want to cover up how and when we have sinned. But God calls us to acknowledge those crossings of his boundaries, to stop doing it, to deal with it with everyone affected, and then to find his forgiveness. Last week, we talked about how to know if God is blessing you. I said the test is whether you're seeking after God wholeheartedly. Another test of whether you really know God is how you deal with sin. That's clear both from 1 John and also from the passage that we're looking at today. In Ezra 9 and 10, we see how the people had sinned against God by intermarrying with the pagan peoples around them. Ezra leads them in dealing with their sin and calls us by his example to repent of transgression even when it's costly and complex. The first big truth I think we see from this passage along these lines is that God requires a line between his people and unbelievers. God requires a line between his people and unbelievers. Uh, sometimes people have said, well, that seems unloving, particularly when it comes to the concept of the church and this idea of there being a distinction between those who are in and those who are out. But they look at the example of Old Testament Israel and they feel that it's even worse, that it's sort of a kind of racism. It's a, a kind of pride. We're better than you. Our group is superior to yours. But the reality is all throughout the Old Testament, God wanted his people to be separate from idolatry and immorality. And to the extent that he had revealed himself to the people of Israel specifically and more or less exclusively, and then they were to go off and, and, and be mixed in with the religion and practices of the peoples around them, that was the thing that God wanted them to avoid. It wasn't that an Israelite is inherently better than a Canaanite because... In terms of ancestry, there wasn't this huge difference. They all originally came from Noah, right? It wasn't that. It wasn't about ethnicity. It wasn't about our group is better than your group. It was about religious distinctiveness and wholehearted devotion to God. The Israelites in this passage had not upheld God's requirements in this way. When this happens, when those lines are crossed, crossing God's line should result in grief over sin. If God requires the line and we cross over the line and ignore it, that should result in grief over sin. So Ezra finds out that the people were intermarrying with the peoples of the land who committed abominations against God. We see that in verse 9, according to their abominations, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. And his response was sorrow over the sin of the people. He tears his clothes. He tears his hair and his beard. He sits down, potentially in ashes, appalled at what it is that he has heard. And I think that this is a... 
an important reminder, we have to hold in tension the reality that we should not expect unbelievers to follow God. So when we hear an unbeliever swearing or committing adultery or murdering or something like that, that shouldn't shock us because that's how unbelievers act. But then it's easy to say, uh, and there's a sense in which this is true. Apart from God's grace, we're all sinners, right? We recognize that there's an extent to which we still have remnants of that old sinful life within us. And so we become accustomed to this idea of we're sinners and we sin and that's kind of normal and God has forgiven us. And, and we don't usually have this response of this is appalling and horrific and something to mourn over. Um, conversation that I had with Sarah about, you know, kids and their concept of sin. We can, we can go to an extreme, right? We tend to fall into one of two extremes. You're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And kids say, well, I'm just a sinner and I'm awful and, and all of that sort of thing. And, and maybe then they conclude and I can never change so well, right? But we can also have a kind of sometimes an alternating or sometimes maybe this is the only way we think about it, a sort of spiritual pride, well, yeah, I'm technically a sinner, but I've been in church my whole life. I haven't done anything really bad. Maybe I stole a candy bar, but I've never robbed a bank. Maybe I said a few mean things to my siblings, but I've never sworn at someone on, on TV. Maybe I've been angry with someone more than I should have, but I've never killed anybody. And it's easy if that's our disposition, our thought, and sort of the the default thing that we go to, to say, I haven't done anything that bad, so I don't really need to be appalled over my sin, just maybe a little bit, feel a little bit bad about it. And both of those are unbiblical extremes. The complete hopelessness that says, there's no forgiveness and this can never change. And the spiritual pride that says, well, yeah, but I'm not like that guy over there. Remember the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who went up to pray. Ezra responds with sorrow about the people's sin. We also see that from his prayer in verses 5 through 15, crossing God's line creates a need for intercession. Now, obviously, you and I individually are supposed to go to God when we have sinned and deal with it with God. But the reality is often in the moment, we're not in a position, we're not prepared to do that. And so God often uses, and we see this with Moses, we see it here with Ezra, we see it with a bunch of examples in the Old Testament, we see it with Jesus himself. God will bring someone along to intercede on behalf of the sins of others, and God uses that as part of the process of bringing those to repentance. So Ezra demonstrates, first of all, humility in verses 5 and 6. His clothes are still torn. He arises from his humiliation, but then he falls on his knees and stretches out his hands to the Lord. So notice these phrases. Fell on my knees, stretched out my hands. I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face. There is iniquity. There is guilt. So he's coming to God with a posture of humility saying, even though this is not my specific sin, it's the sin of my people and God, I'm not worthy to come into your presence. Reminds us, I think, of what we see in Isaiah. He says, I am a man of unclean lips who dwells among a people of unclean lips. 
But then right alongside that, he makes confession and intercedes on behalf of the people. I don't deserve to come in your presence as a representative of a guilty people. We don't deserve for you to hear us, but I'm going to come anyway because of who you are. And he begins by acknowledging their sin. Verse 7, great guilt. Verse 7, iniquities. The result, given into the hands of the kings. For what purpose? Sword, captivity, plunder, open shame. This is not a new thing. The people of Israel went into exile for sin. And now they're at risk again of coming under God's discipline and God's wrath. And Ezra says, here's where we were. And yet you've shown mercy. Grace for a brief moment. Verse 8. Escaped remnant, a peg in his holy place. Remember one of the minor prophets we looked at. There was this, this idea that you're going to be a peg on whom the whole thing is hung. And there's, there, it's like you get to be a coat hook in the temple almost kind of idea. You get to be in the corner of God's house. There's this glimmer of hope. With what purpose? That our God may enlighten our eyes. That there may be a little reviving in our bondage. And yet there's an acknowledgement of the position in which they find themselves. We are still slaves. Yet God has not forsaken us. He's shown loving kindness to us. He's given us reviving to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And he continues in his intercession. The people had sinned, God had shown mercy, and now the people have sinned again. And so the question is, what are they going to do now that they have sinned again? What shall we say after this? Verse 10. We have forsaken your commandments. You told us what to do. You said, the land is unclean. It is full of abominations. It is full of impurity. So don't give your daughters to their sons. Don't take their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or their prosperity. I don't think he's saying you should vindictively go out of your way to attack them, although he does send them to purge the land of its impurity. But I think what he's saying is, you cannot celebrate their gods. You cannot say, well, everything they're doing is okay. We have our way. They have their way. It's all good. We disagree. Don't do this that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave an inheritance to your sons. You said that, God. We committed a lot of idolatry when we didn't listen to you. And you sent us away to exile, and now we're doing it again. And I think it's easy, and I think I've often thought this, the Israelites never really struggled with idolatry after they came back from exile. But the reality is that pull back to the old pattern of sin is strong. And I would say from personal observation and talking with a lot of people, if there's some sin that you have really struggled with in the course of your life, there is hope. God brings deliverance. God brings help. But never for a minute think that you're so beyond it that you could never go back there. Because the Israelites had seen people die and seen generations carried away into captivity and they came back to the land and they were doing the same thing again. And if it were not for Ezra's intercession and call for the people to repent, I think 
what does he say? Shall we again break your commandments and intermarry with the peoples who commit abominations? Would you not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant? Ezra doesn't say, well, we're your people and it's going to work out because you've made these promises to us and so we don't need to have any urgency in dealing with this. And I'm not saying that that's our default, but I think it's easy to say um, if we believe that God is going to carry us to the end, that there is no striving that we must do to reach that goal. And the reason that this is important is if we come with the attitude of, well, yeah, I have a relationship with God. And yeah, I know there's those passages in Hebrews about people who fall away, but those have to only be hypotheticals because we can't lose our salvation. We can't this, this, and this. We lose the weight of the urgency of what God is saying. And I don't think you can lose your salvation like you lose your keys or a book you are reading or whatever else it is that you need. But I do think that there's a reality that if we don't take God's word seriously, we're at risk of doing the thing that we don't think is possible, which is straying away from God sometimes for the majority of our lives. Ezra felt the weight of, here's God's command, here's how we've broken it, this has already happened once, if it happens again, why should we expect God to spare us a second time when he's already shown grace and mercy to us? He reminds them of God's character. O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We've been left an escaped remnant. We're before you in our guilt. No one can stand before you because of this. And so Ezra humbles himself, sorrows over sin, and intercedes for the people that God would bring repentance. As we look over chapter 9, I think it's important to recognize that making a distinction between people who belong to God and those who don't is not unloving or cruel. It is absolutely necessary. I would also point out that the line that distinguishes God's people from unbelievers is not ultimately the way we dress, the words we use, or many of the things we tend to think of. The line between belief and unbelief, at least from this passage, is whether we deal with sin and how we deal with sin. So what does that look like? I think the second point starts in chapter 10, verse 1, and that is restoration after crossing God's line demands repentance first. So God requires a line between belief and unbelief, but when we've crossed over that line, we can't just jump back over and say, it's all good, no one saw it, it's, everything's fine. There has to be repentance before there can be restoration. We want to skip over our sin and not deal with it because it's messy and it's hard and it's shameful. But love for God and fellow believers means we must truly repent. We have to actually deal with our sin. And leaders should model repentance. We see this in verse 1. Ezra is interceding with God. And then a large assembly gather from Israel and the people weep bitterly. Because he models this, the people also gather and they weep bitterly. Then one of the leaders comes to him and says, We have been unfaithful, yet now there is hope for Israel. He confesses in agreement with Ezra and yet holds out hope. He, he gives a solution. Verse 3, Let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of God. 
And that phrase, those who tremble at the commandment of God, we're going to see again before the end of the chapter. And then he says, arise, this matter is your responsibility. You're leading us in it, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. He urges Ezra to rise up courageously and pledges his support along with him. So Ezra causes the priests and Levites and Israel to take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. Now, it's possible for us at this point to say, well, should Ezra have prayed and asked God what to do? And I think the reality is uh, we might see a parallel between this and the thing with, uh, I think it was the Gibeonites who come in the deceitful garments with the moldy bread to make alliance with Israel. And we say, well, they should have prayed to God before they made the promise there. Why did they make a promise here without talking to God? The reality is they already knew what God had said. They already knew what the law had laid out. So there wasn't really a question of what does God want us to do? It's a question of, are we going to do what God would call us to do? So then Ezra arises after um, he has uh, caused them to take this oath. And then he goes to the chamber of Johanan, son of Eliashib, and he does not eat bread or drink water because he's mourning over the faithfulness, the unfaithfulness rather, of the exiles. So he fasts and prays in mourning over the people's sin. So the leader should model repentance. We see that in verses 1 through 6. But God's people must be motivated to follow through in repentance themselves. We see that in verse 1. And then we see it again in uh, verses 7 through 9. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles to assemble at Jerusalem. And whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and elders, his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. So there's a a warning and an urgency. And so the people assemble, verse 9. They assemble at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. It would be easy to stop here and say, and the people repented and everything was great. But that would mean skipping an essential but difficult truth. Repentance is costly and often complex. We see this in chapter 10, verses 9 through 44. What is repentance? Repentance means confessing and forsaking sin when we're confronted about it. Verse 10, Ezra confronts them. You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. So there's a confrontation about the sin. What's the expected response? He calls them to confess their sin to God. Verse 11, make confession of the Lord God of Israel and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, that's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. Confess sin, forsake sin. Ezra confronts them, calls them to confess, calls them to deal with it. The people respond, yes, you're right, this is what we need to do before God. But the process of repentance is often complex. We see this in verse 13. The situation was inconvenient. There are many people. It is the rainy season and we're not able to stand in the open, nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. There are a lot of people gathered. It was the rainy season, so they couldn't stand outside indefinitely. The sin had gone on for a long time and many had committed it, so it was going to take time to work through and have opportunity for each one of them to deal with it properly. 
So the people asked for time. Verse 14, let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. So their leaders would represent them. The offenders would come at appointed times. They would deal with the matter until God was satisfied and his wrath was turned away. It says only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supporting them. Now, it is unclear from the text if this was they're saying, no, we've got to deal with it right today. Or if they're saying, no, we don't have to deal with this. Probably they were urging for a more, a more emphatic, like we're going to fix this today and no one's leaving until it's taken care of. But there was some opposition to the request for time. But verse 16, the exiles did so. Ezra selected men who are heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all by name. So they convened on the first day of the 10th month to investigate the matter. They finished investigating all the men who had married foreign wives by the first day of the first month. So in the course of two to three months, they have gone down through the list, investigated everyone who was guilty of this offense and dealt with the matter according to the oath that they had taken before God. And so it was dealt with in a timely fashion, in an orderly fashion. And even though presumably in verse 15, there was this idea, this has to get fixed right now. It was dealt with promptly, but not the same day. But even though repentance is complex, it's also costly. We see from verses 18 through 44 that it affects all types of people. Verse 18, priests. Verse 23, Levites. Verse 24, singers and gatekeepers. Verse 25, the people of Israel in general. So it wasn't, there was no group of the exiles who had returned who weren't guilty of this sin. All of them were guilty of it to a greater or lesser degree. Sin that is public demands public repentance. I think we see that principle in the New Testament. I think that's why these names are recorded in this book. Was there forgiveness? Was it dealt with? Yes, but there's a public acknowledgement of the sin. Repentance and dealing with sin's aftermath, furthermore, means hard choices. Priests who are supposed to have been leading the people and teaching the people and being an example to the people had to go and confess their sin to the people. I think that this is a good reminder in the context of churches, just as a quick aside, because I think that there is a sense that this can go to two extremes, and both of them can be dangerous. Um, if I, as a pastor, were to come and say, hey, Paul, I really coveted your van last week, and that sort of thing, and I tell someone every last thing that comes into my mind, there's potentially a danger of, mm, to the extent the person wasn't aware of the sin, it's something needs to be dealt with between me and God, you know, that kind of thing. But it's possible to go the other extreme as well, right? I'm going to act like I never sin. I'm going to act like I never have a problem. I'm just going to hide it away. What usually happens in that case? It all comes out. And so to the extent that I, as your pastor, or other people who have various positions assigned in the church have a sin problem that particularly evidences itself in a public way, 
There needs to be a public acknowledgement of it. We'll talk more about that in a moment under the application. But priests who are supposed to lead the people had to acknowledge their sin. All of these who had disobeyed God pledged to divorce. In the passage it says put away. We know that this is a parallel phrase for divorce or ending a, a marriage of rela a relationship or betrothal because we see it the same language in Matthew of what Joseph intended to do with Mary. They offered sacrifices for their guilt. Verse 19, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Their actions affected not just them, but the wives whom they had married and the children who were the offspring of those marriages. There's perhaps a parallel when I was taking a missions course in Bible college. Um, there was a guy who had been a missionary to an island where polygamy and just like general immorality was a very common thing. And so when some people got saved on the island, the question came up, here's these guys who've been saved, but they have more than one wife. Can they be a pastor of the church? First Timothy 3 seems pretty clear that if you're going to lead the church, the principle is faithfulness to your wife, according to the pattern laid out in Genesis, and that Jesus reiterated in Matthew. So if that's the case, can you have a polygamist be a pastor of a church on a remote island somewhere? And the solution for the missionaries, I think paralleling what we see here in Ezra, was to say you cannot abandon them because you have a measure of responsibility to them. But you cannot keep committing the sin or violating God's pattern because that's not right either. So they basically said, here's your first wife. That's the one that you married before God. Here's wives two, three, four, and so on. They're not going to live in your house anymore, but you're going to keep supporting them because you have that obligation. Now, is that hard? Absolutely. Is that a complex situation? Absolutely. But does that honor God? It seems to parallel what happened here in the book of Ezra and the pattern that God established elsewhere in Scripture. The main point, I think, as we come to the end of this section is that failing to honor God's boundaries leads to sin, whether idolatry or immorality or both, and God calls us to avoid those sins at all costs. So as we think back over this passage, we have to ask this question. Could we individually or as a church find ourselves in a situation that parallels what we see in Ezra? Or was that just something God cared about in their day? And my answer is yes, we could find ourselves in a very similar situation, individually or collectively. God cares about who we marry and who we partner with in ministry or treat as fellow believers. So God warned the Israelites throughout the Pentateuch about the dangers of relationships with unbelievers. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Verses 1 through 5, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you're entering to possess it and clears away the nations before you, and when the Lord delivers them, you shall utterly destroy them, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. And he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For your holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So that's what God had told the people of Israel before. 
don't intermarry with the peoples of the land. Which is a really fascinating thing for him to say because he said right before that, get rid of them. So why would he say get rid of them and then don't intermarry with them? Because I think he knew they weren't going to obey the first part of what he said. So then he gave them a second command, don't intermarry with them. When you haven't destroyed them out of the land like I told you to, anticipating the situation with the Gibeonites and everything else, and the lack of diligence on the people, which led to all the problems in the book of Judges, then don't intermarry with them. But they did that too. A clear example is found in King Solomon. He didn't listen to God's warning. God's warning is fulfilled. He had many wives and many concubines, and most of them were pagans, and they turned his heart away from God. This is very clear, 1 Kings 11, 1-9. They turned his heart away from God, so his heart was not wholeheartedly pure before God in the worship of the one true God. He built idols for them. Another example is Balaam's scheme. We see that referenced in Revelation 2, and then also Numbers 31 and 25. He didn't actually necessarily have them do marriage, but he encouraged them to do immorality with the peoples of the land. Paul continues this theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, don't associate with any so-called brother if he is a moral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. So Paul is broadening it a little bit, but he is giving a parallel example and several others about the fact that God is concerned about who we call Christian, fellow follower of God, who we are in close fellowship with, continuing the pattern from the Old Testament. He speaks more about it in 1 Corinthians 7. There's a ton of things in 1 Corinthians 7, but a short summary would be, the normal pattern is to be married. We should marry instead of live in lustful passion. If marriage is ended by death at the end of it, it's legitimate in the Lord, not to an unbeliever. He also speaks more broadly in 2 Corinthians 6 about God's people being separate from unbelievers in terms of partnerships, of which marriage is a clear application, but not the only focus of that chapter. He says, what fellowship is there between light and darkness, Christ and Satan, and so on. So if you're unmarried here today and you're a Christian, don't pursue an unbeliever for marriage. If you do, the almost inevitable outcome is that unbeliever will draw you away from God. This is not me saying this. Go read the Old Testament in particular, but the New Testament as well. What happened over and over again in Israel's history? Marrying unbelievers or even just having sexual relationships with them led God's people away from him. In our society today, lots of people, and that includes people in churches, skip the marriage part and go straight to living with unbelievers as though they were married, and God doesn't allow that either. The bottom line from this passage, Christians should not be entering into marriage relationships with unbelievers, and that starts by not getting involved in relationships that lead to marriage with unbelievers. No matter how nice that person seems, no matter how much it seems like they might have an interest in God, there is a fundamental difference between someone who follows God and someone who doesn't. Remember what I said earlier? There's a line. Someone who knows and follows God has acknowledged their sin and purpose to turn from it. Someone who doesn't follow God hasn't done that. And so aside from all the questions about whose church are we going to go to or not go to church at all, and how should we raise our kids and all of these sorts of things, if this person has never entered into a relationship with God, and this person has, and you say these two people are going to come together, God says you cannot do that because you are joining two things that don't join. Christ has no fellowship with Satan. Light has nothing in common with darkness. 
And we think sometimes that we know better than God and say, well, it'll all work out in the end. Does God in his grace sometimes show mercy to people who are sinful? Absolutely. We see that here in the passage with Ezra. But just because God shows mercy when we make stupid, selfish, sinful choices doesn't mean we should go out of our way to do it. At the core of the gospel is recognizing that we're sinners. I don't want to leave it all in the sin part because that's not where God stops. At the core of the gospel is recognizing we're sinners. We do what God says not to do and we don't do what God says we should. We run away from God instead of pursuing a relationship with him. How can that relationship be established? We have to turn away from our sin and turn to God for forgiveness. And that's the hope of the gospel. There is real forgiveness, not the endless guilt of our modern cancel culture, not the shunning or rejection with no return of various so-called Christian groups, but when sin is confessed and turned away from there is compassion and mercy. But that's probably the most important application of this passage. Not this, this specific issue of marriage with unbelievers or the problem of immorality that we see in the example of Balaam. But what does this passage teach us about how Christians deal with sin? What does it teach us about the gospel? Dealing with sin starts with the gospel. We turn from sin to serve God. Sometimes in connection with this in churches, we talk about the idea of church discipline. Sometimes that's viewed as a very negative idea, but the biblical goal is to keep us on track following after God. So in the Old Testament, God gave priests and scribes and Levites to teach the people who God was. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 4 says he's given apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to teach the church about God. And that is supposed to teach us about God, but there's still moments when we don't listen to what God has said. And when we don't listen to what God has said, there has to be a process of someone coming alongside and saying, all right, here's what God has said. Here's how that's not happening. What are we going to do about it? There's three passages that talk about this. Matthew 18 is the ideal process. At the beginning, you have a choice. Someone does something wrong against you. They say something mean. They lie about you. Whatever it is, you have a choice. Do I forgive that person and we move on? Or is this something that I feel like I need to confront this person about? If you confront that person, Matthew 18 says, you go and talk to them. The goal at each of these steps is repentance and restoration. You go and talk to them. They say, I see what you're saying, or I didn't intend that, or whatever it is. The problem is dealt with. You move on. But if it is a genuine sin and they say, yeah, I meant to lie about you and I'm going to keep doing it. What's the next step? You take someone else. You go and talk to that person. If the response is at that point, they say, you know what? I've thought about it more and I've realized what I've done was wrong and I turn from it. Great. It's done. The process doesn't continue. But if there's still not repentance, then it says the matter is brought before the church and the whole church comes alongside and pleads with that person about that sin. And again, the goal at this point is not to get the person to leave the church. The goal is to see to help that person come back and, and follow God the way they're, they're supposed to. And if there's still a refusal, then it says treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. In other words, we don't hate the person, we don't shun the person, we don't never talk to the person again, but we can't say, hey, fellow believer who's living in a sinful way, everything's great between you and God and you and me. We have to treat it as though we would an unbeliever, pray for their salvation, and, and plead with them in that way, not treating them as a Christian anymore. 
1 Corinthians 5 lays out an instance where the sin is so prevalent that it has to be immediately dealt with. I think that parallels what we see in Ezra 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 5, as best we can tell, there was a man who was living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother. The reason I say that is because it says he has his father's wife instead of his mother. Um, He's living in an immoral relationship with, with her. Paul points out even the Gentiles recognize this is not appropriate. And because all of the surrounding community knows about it, and because all you Corinthians have boasted that we're, we're not touched by sin, sin's dealt with in God, there's no such thing as idols, we can do whatever we want. They had this very loose view of we can do whatever we feel like because we're free in Jesus. Paul says, this has gone so far it has to be dealt with right this moment. Put him out of the church. Stop treating him like a believer and all of you repent of your pride. There was a necessity to immediately deal with something because of public unrepentant sin and the impact on the testimony to the community. 2 Thessalonians 3 is kind of in between the two. Matthew 18 is the ideal process. Here's these four steps. 1 Corinthians 5 is we've jumped all the way to the last step. 2 Thessalonians 3 is in between. Here's someone who's been warned about apostolic teaching and they're ignoring it come alongside them and warn them again maybe several people know about it but not the whole church maybe the whole church knows about it but hasn't done their responsibility paul says look here's someone who perhaps by a misguided thing that says jesus is coming back he's being deliberately lazy and seeking help from other people instead of being responsible and working the way that i taught you to work come alongside that person call them back to walking with god if they keep stubbornly doing it You've got to treat it like it's not no big deal, but you still have this hope and expectation they're going to come back to God. There's, there's been a, a misunderstanding and a foolishness um, and a rejection of truth as opposed to like a deliberate going away and sinning. Church discipline, bottom line, is supposed to lead to repentance, which leads to restoration. What does that restoration look like? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, lays out some characteristics of godly sorrow, which I think we see evidenced by Ezra in his prayer of intercession, and I think we see evidenced by even some of the people themselves in chapters 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 13 says this, Paul says, Though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that it caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And I think he's also referring of something he points out in chapter two. He says, I determined this for my own sake. I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. 
For out of much anguish and affliction of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but to some degree, all of you. Sufficient for such a one is the punishment inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. To this end, I also wrote, so I might put you all to the test, whether you're obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. 1 Corinthians 5, there's the man who's sinning, he's put out of the church. I would argue 2 Corinthians 2, he's repented, and now the church is saying, we're not sure if we should let him back in. And Paul says, absolutely you should, because Satan can exploit you by you guys encouraging sin in your midst and Satan can also exploit you by an attitude of not forgiving when someone's genuinely repented. Both of those are schemes of Satan. Don't fall for either one of them. We might listen to this passage today and say this has nothing to do with me. You're like, I have never thought about marrying an unbeliever. Maybe my temptation is some other thing. That's not what the passage talks about. So it has nothing to do with me. It's not lust. It's greed. It's not immorality. It's laziness. It's some other thing that's not what we've talked about this morning. I would urge you to take the principles of this passage and apply them to the thing that you struggle with. And think about the responsibility that you have toward other people when they're struggling with sin. Ezra interceded for other people and the people dealt with their sin. So whether you're Ezra or whether you're one of the leaders who's let things go on or whether you are one of the people committing the sin, whichever group you see yourself in in this passage, there's something for you to do, right? God draws a line between believers and unbelievers. Believers ought to be holy. They have to deal with their sin. Are we doing that? If we have sinned and we haven't dealt with it, the path forward is repentance leading to restoration. It can be costly. It can be complex, but we have to follow through. And maybe you say, I, don't, I can't think of anything that I've specifically sinned and I uh, haven't confessed to God. Then I would encourage you to pray fervently because someone you know is almost certainly dealing with something they need to deal with with God. They need God's help. And you need to be prepared because you and I are likely to be, if we're not dealing with a sin right this minute, dealing with a sin and a temptation shortly, right? Because that's how these things go in life. Maybe in this moment we're following wholeheartedly after God, but last year I wasn't. Maybe in this moment I'm sinning, but last year I was trying to follow God, and so as those things come and go, we need to either be confessing our sin getting forgiveness from other people, receiving forgiveness from other people, um, asking forgiveness of other people, praying for one another to be going through this process the way that God wants. All of these things apply at some point in the course of our lives, whether it's right now or tomorrow or last week, right? So repent of transgression even when it's costly and even when it's complex. God has forgiveness and mercy and restoration, but we cannot say, well, you know, here's God's path and here's my path. I'm going to do my path, right? Because that's fundamentally the problem before we came to know Jesus, right? We were doing our own thing. We have to say, here's God's path. The same way I came to him for salvation is the same way I come to him for forgiveness now. The same way someone else needs to or has come to him for salvation is the same thing we have to call them to come to him for forgiveness now. And we need to be earnestly praying that we deal with sin, they deal with sin, all of us draw closer with God, 
So pray for one another, repent of your sin, find God's mercy and fellowship with God's people. I think that's what this passage calls us to do. Not because it's easy, not because we want to do it. This is probably one of the hardest things that is true in our Christian lives to work through. But it is absolutely necessary because if we truly love God and God hates sin, we can't come before God with our sin and act like everything's okay. But neither should we have the attitude of the Pharisees. I've never done anything bad. The older brother and the story of the prodigal son. I've never done anything bad. Those people over there can't have spiritual pride, can't have rampant sin, have to have a humility that deals with sin, turns to God, and together all of us grow closer to him. Let's pray. Father, I think it's easy for us to look at our Christian lives and say, oh, here's all these things that we are supposed to do and not to do. And the second that we don't do or we do them, that's the problem. But the problem is, do we have a relationship with you and a desire to please you or do we have a desire to go our own way? There's been lots of moments in my life when I've wanted to go my own way. The issue wasn't whether I knew what was pleasing to you. The issue wasn't ultimately whether I was doing or not doing that thing. It was the fact that I didn't love you in that moment. Lord, to the extent that that's true in any of our hearts right now or recently or about to be, I pray that you would draw our hearts toward you, that we would seek to please you not for ourselves, not out of a sense of religious pride, not out of a sense of careless, doing whatever we feel like, but then we would come to you and because we love you, then we obey you. Because that's what your word says is the test. If we love you, we keep your commandments. We don't keep your commandments so that you love us. We don't keep your commandments to earn the opportunity for you to love us. We keep your commandments because we already have a relationship with you and then we know that we are in you. And to the extent that we're not keeping your commandments doesn't mean that we don't know you, but it does mean that there's something between us and you we've got to deal with. Lord, give us the boldness and the diligence and the concern to deal with those things like Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 7. Help us to have the um, the commitment to you to go through the hard process of talking to other people about sin or confessing our sin when we have committed it, especially in a, in a way that is very evident to other people. And it's easy to pick out two or three sins from the list of sins in the Bible and say these are the ones that have to be dealt with. But the reality is anything that creates a rift or a division among your people is something that you deeply care about needs to be dealt with so it doesn't destroy the unity of your church. And that can be slander as much as it is lust. That can be laziness as much as it is hatred. It can be any number of things, Lord. So help us not to hear this passage and think, so-and-so really needs to hear this. Help us to hear this passage and say, Lord, I need to hear this. Help me to deal with my sin better. Help me to intercede for others better. Help me to see you work in my life and in the lives of my fellow believers. Lord, we pray that you would do this work in us. 
Not that we will be perfect before Jesus comes back or we go to be gathered to him. But we shouldn't be content to say I'm 20% of the way there. So that's as far as I'm going and I'm done. So Lord, I just pray that you would give us grace in these things. Amen.